0: This is Civilly Speaking, brought to you by the Ohio Association for Justice. Hello and welcome to OEJ's Civilly Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Harris. Thanks for joining us. Today we have Dennis Mulvihill with the Wright & Schulte Firm, who will be talking with us about jury selection. Dennis, welcome. Thank you, Sean. Um, Dennis, tell us generally how you approach jury selection
1: these days. Uh, my thought behind jury selection is you have to find the people during voir dire who just simply aren't going to listen to your case um, and that is getting increasingly difficult when you have courts that don't want to give you the time to actually uh, find those answers um, and so really from my perspective the most important aspect of jury selection is weeding out the people who are the tort reform group that will not listen to the evidence, that have made up their mind before they come in the courtroom. Uh, and, you know, the challenge is, for the most part, they probably don't even recognize that, that, that that's their own
0: mindset. So you really have to have some time to dive into it with them in order to figure that out. Now, you mentioned it a couple of times there the amount of time you have. And, and really, it's probably too late the morning of trial to start figuring out how much time. What do you do in advance of trial? Uh, personally, uh, at the first case
1: management conference, I talked to the judge about jury selection. And any time we're in front of the judge or the staff attorney, I talk about voir dire and what the judge does in voir dire and why, if the judge isn't willing to give us enough time, why it's important to give enough time and start that discussion early so that you're not surprising anybody the day of trial. And how about motions in limine on this? Issue. Well, it's not so much a motion to eliminate because you're not asking any evidence to be excluded or admitted, but what you're doing is getting the issue in front of the court. So um, certainly you can file a motion for an expanded time if the judge has already told you that there's not uh, going to be enough time to actually talk to the jurors and or otherwise just file a bench brief on the issue, sure.
0: Traditionally, Vordier was focused on trying to establish a relationship with the jurors. Is that your approach?
1: No. Um, so, you know, that's certainly the way we were taught going to the old OATL uh, and AAJ, that you need to establish a relationship, they need to like you, they need to like your client, and really that's about all you can hope to accomplish. You know, I, I think that um, if you do voir dire right and you treat the jurors respectfully, they will respect you and maybe even like you, but that's not the goal of jury selection. The goal of jury selection is to find those people who simply won't listen to your case and excuse them for
0: cause. And in that vein, I've heard people describe it as jury deselection, right. deselecting folks that are going to be the worst. I, I think that's probably a fair way of saying it. Do you? How do you get these folks to to open up? Right. I mean, here they are. They're scared. But studies show that people are more afraid of speaking in public than death itself.
1: Um, I think you've got to do a couple of things. You've got to start the jury selection uh, with that in mind, Sean, and you have to give them permission to say the socially repulsive. Nobody wants to say in a group of people in public, in a courtroom, with a judge three or four feet higher than they are in a blue or black robe, that they can't follow the law or they can't be fair and and, and, uh, impartial. That is something that is very difficult for people to do. So you really can't go about it in a direct way. If you ask someone, can you follow the law? I mean, unless they want to get thrown off the jury, they're all going to say yes. So you have to be a little more creative in how you ask the questions. Um, So there is a challenge of of getting to those questions in an indirect manner when you know a direct question question won't give you the answer that you need and won't give you information you can work with. And so how do, so what's, so how do you do that in an indirect manner? Well, I, I, I mean, it just depends on what you're talking about. I mean, I think there are a lot, of, a lot of ways of going about it. One of my favorites is, at least with respect to, you know, a, a statutory cause challenge is if they can't follow the law, they can't be on the jury. And so, you know, one of the things you can talk about is burden of proof. And particularly if you've got a higher value case, Where you're going to be asking for a lot of money. You know, you talk to the juror about, you know, what a civil burden of proof is, preponderance of the evidence, what a criminal burden of proof is, um, beyond a reasonable doubt. And, uh, um, and then you say now, uh, something along the lines of, I've already told you I'm going to be asking for $5 million in this case. Um, do you need something more than, you know, a preponderance of the evidence. Do you need more from me because I'm asking for so much money? You know, along those lines, and it's much easier for the jury to say, you know what, I do need more than what the law it requires, rather than simply
0: saying, can you follow the law, which will always get an affirmative answer. Well, and you and you raised an issue there that I want to ask you about, and, and I think you've answered it, but let's talk about the idea of a, a specific um, amount of money being discussed during jury selection. Sounds like. That's something you're pretty open about. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of it. Um,
1: uh, I think that you don't want to scare jurors at the end of the case with a big number if they're not prepared for it. Um, I think you can turn people off. I also think you can, you know, what you do in jury selection, you can then do an opening and you can then do in closing. And you can say, listen, I told you two weeks ago, three days ago, you know, five minutes ago that we were going to be asking for, X amount of dollars, and here's why, and this is the evidence that I brought you to substantiate exactly what I told you at the beginning of this case. And that way, I think there, you, you develop a rapport, because with jurors, there are some people, particularly with the larger number of cases, that just won't award X amount of dollars, no matter what the evidence is. And that's another good way to go after a juror. You know, if you're, if you've got a case that actually realistically justifies a five million dollar or seven million dollar or whatever number, uh, from the jury, and you have people who just can't give that money no matter what the evidence is, jurors have a duty to follow the law, and part of following the law is they have to listen to the evidence and evaluate the evidence. If they are unwilling to evaluate the evidence because you're going to be asking for something that goes beyond their preconceived range of acceptability, then they're not following the law, and you can excuse them for that as well.
0: I've heard some lawyers say that they're concerned that if I give them a particular number in jury selection and then the evidence comes out differently, that I might have to change that number later on. Any concerns along those lines? Uh, well, sure, but then I would say you don't know your case very well if you
1: don't know what the evidence is going to be at trial. Asking the jury for a number or telling them what you're
0: going to be asking for
1: presumes you know what the evidence in trial is going to be. Fair point.
0: Uh, looking back over your uh, jury selection experience, any uh, memorable stories or answers uh, jump out of your mind from potential jurors?
1: A, a few, and, and you know, it's it's always... I would say there are no hard and fast rules on jury selection. You may get someone who you believe is a, uh, tort reformer, anti-plaintiff type juror, but then they give you an answer that causes you to rethink all of that. And then, and then you're, cause you don't have to exercise challenge causes if you don't want to. It's a motion to excuse a juror. And if you don't want to raise the motion, you don't have to. And I've had some people who, I otherwise would have immediately reflexively kicked off the jury or tried to kick off the jury who gave answers towards the end of Wadir that in my mind kind of rehabilitated them and I left them on the jury and it worked out. Um, I I remember one time I was in a very conservative county and um, we were talking about what caps should be on cases um, because it was a wrongful death case. There was no economic component. It was just pure... The family lost their uh, retired father, and what was the verdict going to be, assuming we won the case? And uh, this guy was someone I had had a checklist of, I don't like him, I don't like him, I don't like him. And then I asked him what um, uh, he thought the cap should be in a case, and he said $25 million, that no juror should ever award more than $25 million dollars. Well, I wasn't asking for anywhere near that amount in that case. And I left him on. It turns out he was a very
0: strong juror for us, who I otherwise would have excluded but for that answer. I take it uh, that uh, the old uh, theory of, of selecting jurors based on uh, demographics is old-fashioned. I,
1: I, I, think, I think it's not only old-fashioned. It's, it's potentially unconstitutional under Batson and its progeny. I don't think you can make socio- uh, at least with respect to maybe race and gender, uh, decisions anymore. And that, I think, is probably your best argument for getting more time from the judge. I mean, if the judge is going to say you have 20 or 30 minutes to do a voidir, then you kind of have to fall back into those old sto- socioeconomic stereotypes, which I don't think work at all. Um, and you can really tell the judge, listen, if you think that I can find out who's fair and impartial, in 25 or 30 minutes when I'm talking to 20 or 30 people, you're crazy, and what you're going to then ask me to do is perhaps make unconstitutional decisions about these people because you're not letting me know anything about them, and I'm falling back to stereotypes.
0: In a, in a case where you have a limited time, are there particular topics, regardless of the case, that you know you want to cover? That's the sixty four thousand
1: dollar question, and I don't know that I've completely figured that out yet. If I figured any of this stuff out, which I haven't, but um, you know, I, I think that the hot button topics that I think really get people riled up um, in in jury selection, where you can really kind of explore their biases, um, are the amount of money you're going to ask for. How they feel about lawsuits generally, um, and, uh, whether or not they think if they make an award for your client, that their costs are going to go up, their insurance costs, their costs for products, those kinds of things. And if you get, you know, affirmative answers to any of those, those are big red flags for people that you really try to, ought to get for, for cause. And if you can't, um, then get for, uh, use your peremptory zone.
0: Dennis, you mentioned, um, limited amount of time, and I know that's something that uh, lots of trial lawyers are are facing uh, around the state when they go in for jury trials. Uh, Regardless of the size of the case or the length of the trial, how do you uh, set up the judge in advance in order to get more time? A couple of things. I think you have to do it from the beginning,
1: as I mentioned. I think you've got to start at the initial case management conference, and that conversation has to continue every single time you see the judge. So you're kind of priming the judge for it. But substantively, I think you have to let the judge know. And my experience has been that most judges want to limit time because, e, pardon me, A, they're too busy, or B, they think you're going to argue your case or talk about your case. And from my perspective in jury selection – I don't mention anything about my case, hardly at all. I don't want the jurors knowing my case. I don't want the jurors knowing my client. I don't want them to know how badly my client was hurt um, because then I think you get fairer answers from the jury. They're not already kind of pre-influenced by what they think this case is about. If I come into the courtroom with someone who's horribly burned or horribly paralyzed, suddenly people who would be more willing to spill venom and get hang themselves and get themselves off the jury are probably less likely because it becomes more socially repulsive to say they can't be fair when you've got someone who's horribly burned or sitting in a wheelchair. So the more they know about the case, I think the less likely they are to reveal their own deep-seated biases. You want to know what they're thinking before they hear anything about the case. As little as possible, and that's what I try to encourage the judge to do. So I think what you have to tell the judge and this is what I've done, and, and with some success and with some failure, um, is I am not going to be talking about my case. I am not going to be arguing my case. I am here to follow the statute and follow the statute explicitly as to whether or not someone can be a fair and impartial juror, whether they will follow the law. Um, and it really is getting into their bias because everybody now has thoughts about things. And this, you know, I think we're more entrenched now in our own beliefs maybe than we ever have been and And I think the you know the the various news organizations probably you know reinforce that in people's minds, so I think now more than ever, we have to have time um and I think you can bring that to the court and there are a lot of studies out there that talk about once people have already made up their mind about things that they're not going to change it. So I think I've actually brought studies to judges before and said, "Here, take a look at this, this is why I need time. We have to find these people." And um, you know, it's listen. It's one judge at a time, one trial at a time, trying to turn the judges to allow us to have an appropriate amount of uh, time to actually conduct a voir dire. Dennis,
0: how do you deal with uh, jurors who um, are attacking you, attacking your client, attacking the system, and just as you say, spewing venom?
1: I I encourage it for the most part. Um, I, I want enough evidence to take to the judge that juror A, B, or C uh has said enough to actually disqualify themselves from servants under the statute. Um, and I think there's very little risk of those jurors infecting other jurors. Um, in fact, you know, in my experience with some of the more you know aggressive jurors, the rest of the jury pool kind of laughs at how unfair they are. And so I think it really sets the tone. Now there is an exception to that, and if your juror is an expert in the field, let's say, for example, you've got a a claims adjuster uh, who has spent her or his entire career adjusting these claims, and they start talking about how 95% of these are frivolous and it's all baloney and everybody's just out to rip off the system. The jurors actually may listen to that juror because he or she is an expert in the field, Um, much like if you had a doctor in a malpractice case and doctors talked about how frivolous all these cases are, the jurors may actually listen to that. But for the most part, encourage people to spew their venom, ask who else agrees with that, continue the
0: conversation. The more venom you get,
1: the more chance you have to excuse jurors for cause.
0: Dennis, it's now the time on the podcast when we play five questions. All right, and I know you're not prepared for this, which is part of the fun. And so question number one, what is your uh, musical guilty pleasure?
1: Uh, I don't know that I would. Call it guilty, but I definitely
0: have a preference for '80s alternative. Okay, and this is being recorded, so just keep that I, in I mind. I understand. All right. Uh, question number two: Who do you want to play you in the movie of your life? There is nobody who who is interested in the movie of me, so that would be nobody. <laughs> Not going to happen. Yeah. If 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 a movie was made against your will, who would your preference be to play me in a movie? Yes, um, Manu Bull perfect
1: let's just let that sit in sink in (laughs) well i mean it's a joke because obviously everybody every day asks me how tall i am so he was the (laughs) the the guy that came to mind about the tallest tallest actor who could play me
0: what's the most interesting job you've ever had other than being a trial lawyer um interesting i would say high school teacher why
1: the, the daily dynamics and dramas with the kids and their families.
0: How long did you do that? Two years. Uh, question number four. What was your first car? Chevy Citation. What year?
1: 76. Nice. No, uh, no, not a Citation. I can't remember the name of it. It was a 1976 complete lemon, and it was a Chrysler, not a Chevy. It was in the repair shop all the time.
0: Uh question number five. True or false, you will try a case with that beard. False. <laughs> Dennis Mulvahill, thanks very much for being thanks on sure. civilly speaking.